Y'all turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, we're going to be, again, once again, in the parable of the prodigal son, final Sunday for that, but next week we'll talk about another one of Jesus' stories of grace. Um, But think about the song we just heard. Think about next Sunday is Father's Day. For many of us who still have our dads, it's a a special day. We get a chance uh, to make sure and let him know how much we appreciate him. For those of you who your father has already passed on, you can remember uh, the part he played in your life and, and how much you owe to him. But for many people, their relationship with their dad is tough. It's difficult. Uh, maybe, maybe their dad wasn't really there for them. Maybe they didn't really even know him. Or maybe they knew him and they wish they hadn't. We need to acknowledge that too as a congregation. Some of those people are sitting in this room. And so Father's Day is a tough day for them. Many of them are out there in our community Long, long ago, there was a a young man born in Germany in the Middle Ages uh, who had a father who was not good. His dad was very wealthy, a good provider. He'd made a lot of money in the copper mines. He, He had high hopes for his son. He wanted his son to go into law and make a lot of money like he did. But he pushed his son. He was very cold. He was very demanding. Uh, Love was not something this boy received from his dad. His father sent him at an early age off to a boarding school where every day he was awakened at 4 a.m., and regularly beaten by his schoolmasters when things didn't go well, when he didn't behave correctly or didn't make the right grades. Uh, they believed in that kind of motivation, very negative motivation. And so he grew up believing that God must be a lot like his father, a lot like his schoolmasters. In fact, he wanted to please his dad and go into law, but at the same time, he wanted to do something greater, something bigger. Uh, He wanted to be a a priest, not because he loved God, but because he was terrified of God. And he thought, I need to do something big. I need to sacrifice my life in some way. Otherwise, I'm destined for hell because I know that I'm not a good person. One day, as he was in law school as a young man and he was headed back to school uh, after a trip home, he was walking and was in the middle of an open field when suddenly a huge thunderstorm sprang up and he was caught in the midst of that storm and a bolt of lightning struck the ground right near him, knocked him off his feet and he was so afraid that he cried out to God, to St. Anne actually, and he promised to become a monk. So not just a priest, but to enter the, the monastery. And he did. I mean, most people who make a rash vow in a moment of crisis say, well, hey, God would understand. I, was, I, was, I had bad judgment. But this, this boy knew there's no way I can go back on my word to God. And so he left law school, infuriated his father, and entered the monastery where immediately he was a model monk in many ways. He prayed and worked and studied scripture daylight to dusk. He never rested. But on days when it was time for confession, and he would go to the confessional and to, before the priest, they would, they would get so tired as he would list sin after sin after sin, they'd finally say, listen, kid, go, go home. You've done enough, if you can imagine. Uh, and he would go back to his little cell there in the monastery, and he would get there and realize, oh my gosh, there, there are sins that I forgot to confess. And not knowing what else to do, he would devise punishments for himself, thinking maybe if I punish myself, God won't punish me. See, he thought that God was like his dad or like his schoolmasters, that it was all about pleasing him, all about, all about satisfying, and he couldn't be satisfied. When he was, uh, a, as a priest, they, for the first time asked to do a mass, he was holding the literal, what he believed was the literal body and blood of Jesus, and it scared him so badly, he almost passed out, and another monk had to come take over. So his fellow monks would try to help him. They'd say, listen, you don't have to be perfect in order to please God. You just have to love him. 
And that scared him even more because he realized, I don't love God. In fact, I hate God because God is like my dad. And so he didn't know what to do. And his supervisors didn't know what to do with him either. And one of them came up with a kind of a bizarre idea. Let's make this kid a Bible teacher. Let's send him to the seminary where he'll lecture on scripture to young, uh, young men who are growing up and want to go into the ministry. And their thought was maybe if, maybe if he spends all of his time studying scripture and preparing me- me- lessons, he won't have time to obsess over his sins. And that old abbot had no idea what he had unleashed on the world. Because early in his teaching career, this young man, this young monk was preparing a lesson on Romans chapter one and he came to Romans one verse 17. I wanna read that to you. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by, what's that next word? Faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he had read that before, no telling how many times he had read and heard that and yet for the first time he understood my God is a good father. And like any good father, he doesn't, he doesn't give us things only when we're good. He gives us what we need all the time and he gives us his love freely. And all I've got to do is like a little child, accept it by faith. If I will just believe that he can love me just as I am, he will. If I can just believe that I'm his son by faith, I will be. And he, he wrote later that it was like the gates of heaven open and I entered in. And that young man was Martin Luther and he left that monastery and he changed the world. He sparked the Protestant Reformation. Without the Reformation, humanity would never have come back to this idea that all human beings are created equal before God. Without that idea, there wouldn't be United States of America. We don't even know how much the world was changed because one young man found out about grace. And that's how powerful grace is. The grace of God is the most powerful force on earth. It is the only thing that can change a life forever. It is the only thing that can save a world. And grace is found in one place and one place only, and that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not found in any other religion or any other philosophy of life. It is found in the teachings of Jesus and those who follow him. And so we're studying during this series the stories Jesus taught. He was a storyteller. He wasn't a guy who just stood up and gave three points in a poem. He told stories, and so many of his stories were about this idea of grace that's so hard for us, so hard for us to grasp. And his most famous story of grace is the story of the prodigal son or the story of the two lost boys, as I call it. And I want us to start by looking at the first two verses of chapter 15, and then we'll talk about the rest of the chapter, but, but we haven't read this yet. Chapter 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And verse 3 says, then Jesus told them this parable. So Jesus was, this, this sets the the stage for us. It shows us who Jesus was talking to, very diverse crowd. And there were in that crowd at least three different kinds of people, I would say, because people haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. There were people in that crowd we know, number one, who thought they had God in their pocket. Now listen to these categories I'm going to give you because you may say, if you're honest, I fit into one of those categories. And if not, if not, I'm going to tell you what the instruction is for you at the end. But so listen up. That first group of people, the scribes and the Pharisees, most of them would have said or would not have said, but thought that they had God in their pocket. And when I say that, I mean, think about movies about the mafia. Think about the mob boss who's been arrested in one of those movies. And and you know that the all the evidence is against him. They've got an airtight case. He knows he's guilty. 
and yet he's not sweating. He's not afraid. Why? Because the judge is in his pocket, so to speak. He's paid him off. He knows that judge is going to let me walk no matter what evidence the state throws at me. And see, these men, these, these teachers of the law, these religious leaders, they believed that God was in their pocket. They never would have expressed it that way, but they believed we are higher up on the, on the food chain of spirituality. We, we are God's favored people. Not only are we Jews, the chosen ones of God, but we're the best Jews there are. We have paid God off by obeying his commands. There were 613 separate commands in the Old Testament and they knew them backwards and forwards, could have quoted them by memory and lived them better than anybody else on earth at that time aside from Christ himself. And they thought that made them good in the sight of God. And they thought that gave them immunity from judgment. And I thought that enabled them to do whatever they wanted because they were in God's favor. In fact, they thought it was their, not only their privilege, but their responsibility to look down on those who did not, did not live lives as pure as they did. Because after all, if religious folks can't look down with judgment and scorn upon people who aren't as good, then how else are those people going to know that they need to change, right? And the second group, second group of people in that crowd were people who had given up on God. They were the opposite of those who thought they had God in their pockets. They thought God wanted nothing to do with them. And so they had given up long ago, maybe because of the circumstances of their birth. Maybe they weren't pure in their birth or maybe more likely because of the circumstances of their life. They'd made some mistakes somewhere along the way. They drifted too far. They had, they had crossed too many lines and they said, no, God wants nothing to do with me. And, and for most people in that category, and I, I frankly doubt many people here this morning are in that category because most people like this don't want to be in church, but maybe by some miracle someone has brought you here today, I hope so. But for most people in that category, the idea is because life is short and if there is a God, he probably doesn't care for me, I'd better get as much enjoyment out of life now as I can. And it reminds me of uh, when I was in college, I, was, I stayed in, in, a, in all four years in one dorm on the campus at U of H. And one year there was a, a new freshman who came in and word got around. This kid was from some little town in East Texas. Word quickly got around that uh, several weeks into school, into the first semester, he had done so poorly on several tests, he had just decided, okay, I'm dropping all my classes. So went down to the admission office and said, drop all my classes. I don't want it, those bad grades and, and just decided I'm going to live it up. You know, the rest of the semester, I'm just going to live it up and do whatever I want to do. And, and then we'll face the music at the end of the semester. And so, you know, we'd, we'd walk by his dorm room every morning and his lights would still be off because he'd been up partying all night and he was sleeping all day. And then one day I was, I, I came home from class and there was a moving van out in front of the dorm out in front of Tall Paul and, and I looked at a friend and I said, what, what's that about? And he said, oh yeah, you know the kid? Because we didn't know his name. He was just the kid. The kid's parents got a call from the admissions office that said he dropped all his classes and now they've come to get him and take him home and we never saw him again. His paradise lasted two weeks. Two weeks. And that's a lot of us, a lot of folks who think God's given up on me. I'm going to get, I'm going to suck the marrow out of life. I'm going to make life about me and about what I want. And it never lasts. It never lasts like we think it will. Third group that were there that day were those who were afraid of God. 
They were afraid of God. They, they, they knew how sinful they were. They knew how righteous God is. And some of them perhaps tried to cope with that fear the way Martin Luther did before he became a believer in Christ. Just out of fear, just constantly trying to perform, running that religious treadmill, trying to do their best to impress God and win him over through obedience, through acts of sacrifice, through audacious acts of religiosity. And, and those people were in that crowd, I'm sure. And then others who have the same motivation but go the other way with it because I'm so afraid of God, I wanna stay as far from him as possible. I'm never going to synagogue. I'm never going to temple. I'm, I, I'm never gonna offer sacrifice because my sacrifice wouldn't be good enough. Jesus was talking to them as well, I'm sure there are people here this morning who are in that category. In every church, there are people like that thinking, I don't care what you say about grace, I know how bad I am and I've got to earn God's favor. The message of the gospel never really has penetrated that idea. And so Jesus has these three groups of people standing before him and he tells not just one story, but three different stories. We haven't looked at the two shorter stories yet. Jesus first told the story of the lost sheep and how there's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and, and one wanders away and that leaves him with how many? Come on, basic math. 99, 99 sheep. And you would think that that's enough, right? You don't need a hundred. 99's plenty. But no, that shepherd leaves the, the 99 in the field and hunts until he finds that one lost sheep. And when he finds him, it doesn't say he whips him because he wandered away. No, he puts him on his shoulders, carries him home, and throws a celebration. And then the next story Jesus told was about a, a woman who has 10 valuable coins, and she notices one day that there are only nine. And rather than say, hey, nine's more than most people have, she turns her house upside down looking for that one lost coin. And when she finds it, she does kind of a bizarre thing. She throws a party for something that was already hers. She's so glad to have found it, though. That's all she knows to do. And Jesus is telling these two stories to a group of people who have never thought about God this way. Who would think in that culture, or even today, to compare God to a giddy housewife? Who would think to say that God cares more about the lost souls who are coming home than the people who always did the right thing and thought they were already in the family? And yet Jesus says those exact things. And then he comes to the famous story, the story we all know that we've talked about the last few weeks, and I'm going to cover it real quickly again. The father had two sons. The younger came to him one day and said, Father, I want my share of the estate. I don't care about you. I just want your money. Give it to me, and I'm done with you. And the father, heartbroken, gave him what he asked, and the boy fled and went to a distant land and wasted it all on wine, women, and song. And then, and then, the boy realized on skid row with, with nothing to his name, feeding pigs for a living, stripped of all his dignity and his pride, he said, I'm going to go home. My father will never accept me as a son, but maybe I can work for him. Maybe I can, maybe I can earn back his love by paying him back for what I took. And he came home, and as he staggered home, his father saw him. And here's where we're going to pick up the story because here's what we haven't covered. We haven't talked about the father yet. When the father looked out and saw that boy coming down the road, all disheveled and, and tattered, the word of God says, or Jesus said, he ran to him. The father ran to him. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. Men did not run in that culture. Men did not run. Some of you are like, I don't run either. Well, this isn't because they were out of shape, okay? Okay. <laughs> 
Men did not run for a very specific reason. The dignity of the patriarch of a family was essential. And in order to run the kind of clothes they wore in those days, a man had to gather up the folds of his garment, the skirts of his robe, and hold them up, up next to his hips, and that exposed his legs. Now, boys and girls, is there anything less dignified than your dad in shorts? (laughs) Those pasty white legs... Probably socks and sandals, right? I mean, just totally. In fact, I'll say this. I, I'm, I, love, I loved my kids when they were little. I love them now that they're older. One of the cool things about when your kids get older is you get to embarrass them. I mean, that's awesome. You know, you just come on out and whatever you have on and they're like, dad, that's wonderful. But in this culture, y'all aren't getting me, I can tell. In this culture, the dad didn't want that. He, he, he wanted to be dignified. He wanted his kids always to look up to him. He wanted the community to say, now that is a respectable man. That is a man with dignity. And suddenly this, this man loses all of that. He throws it away. He doesn't care what the neighbors think. He doesn't care how he looks. All he cares about is his son has come home. And he doesn't want to wait for that boy to stagger all the way to the door. He runs to meet him. That tells us something about our God, doesn't it? And, and imagine what the boy thinks. He's never seen his dad run before. And suddenly he sees his dad barreling toward him in a cloud of dust. And he's probably thinking, he is coming to kill me. But the father gets there and he kisses him. And he calls for three things. He calls for a robe, a ring, and sandals. And those all have specific meanings. The robe, he says, bring out the best robe. And that would be the robe that he wore, he himself, the dad's robe, his own. He, he's covering the boy's poverty with his own wealth. He's covering the boy's boy's shame with his own dignity. The the ring would have been the signet ring that the father wore to signify the family name. And so it was a way of saying to the son, now you bear that seal. You're back in the family. You're official. You can show this to anyone and say, I'm his son. The sandals represented wholeness because that boy had lost everything. He didn't even have shoes on his feet. And the dad said, I will care for your every need. You come to me with nothing, and I will make sure you have everything you need. All of those things are are things that it's hard for us to accept about our heavenly father, but it's true. No matter what your earthly dad was like, this is what your heavenly father is like. He wants you to have his righteousness rather than asking you to provide your own. He wants you to know that you're his. He wants you to bear his name, even if you think, I'm not worthy of that. You ever out talk to somebody and say, are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying. And you don't have to try because he did it. You don't have to provide for yourself. He provides for you everything you need. And then he says, kill the fattened calf. You see, we we take for granted that meat is going to be available. I mean, I bet most of the people in this room have had meat to eat at least twice in the last 24 hours. You had a burger for lunch and a steak for supper, and you thought nothing of it. But in that culture, they didn't eat meat very often. This was a special occasion kind of thing. This was when company came over or there was a holiday. Uh, The the fattened calf was the best of the breed, the best of the herd. I mean, it was, he he may have been saving that for breeding stock. And yet he says, no, 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 that's going to make the best ribeyes. Get that one because we're having a party, because my son has come home. And what this says about us, what this says about God is we are so valuable to him He rejoices every time one of his children comes home. He rejoices. 
And then it comes to that unorthodox ending, that ending where Jesus leaves us hanging off a cliff as he depicts the father going out to meet his older son, the older son who is out there in the field with his arms folded, shaking his head because dad has welcomed home the son who deserves punishment. And he's so angry, dad, how come you, how come you let that boy back? You're taking from my inheritance and I deserve it and you've never done anything this extravagant for me. When's my obedience gonna pay off? And Jesus leaves us with this cliffhanger of the father saying to the son, but you don't understand, we had to celebrate. Now, now won't you come home too? Won't you come in and enjoy the party with me? And you understand, don't you, that he's addressing directly those religious leaders standing in the crowd who are so upset about Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And he's saying, they're coming home. You should be excited. We want you to come home too. Jesus is looking at men and and he's saying, listen, I know you hate me. I know that you're conspiring to kill me. And yet I want you saved as well. And that's how the story ends. And so for those three groups, Jesus addresses them all directly. For those people who thought that God was in their pocket, he says, no, you don't understand. It's about grace. It's not about what you've done. It's about grace. And that's so hard for religious people to accept. You know, you'd think that, you would think that people who were in church every Sunday would, would know the most about grace, but sometimes it seems like we know the least. Fred Craddock, the old preacher, was talking about one day he, he preached on the parable of the prodigal son, decided to do it a different sort of way and, and said, what if, what if the father instead had said to that younger boy, you're out of the family, I'm never receiving you back, had sent him home on his ear or had sent him out on his ear but had gone to that older boy and said, because of all your obedience and goodness, I'm gonna give you this robe and this ring and these sandals and we're gonna have a celebration for you. And as he told that story, someone in the back of the congregation shouted out, that's the way it should have been. Because that's how we feel a lot of times. Why does God care about all those people out there in the world? Look at me. You know, sometimes I think people in the church misunderstand the gospel so profoundly, and that's why we're not reaching people like we should. I think if you ask people to describe the gospel, it would sound something like this. Well, there's this train that goes to heaven, and it's the only way to get there, and the only way on board that train is to have a ticket, and the only way to have a ticket is to follow the commandments. And if you're good at following those commandments, and you, and you do your, your thou shalts, and you don't do your thou shalt nots, you get a ticket, and you get on, and you go. You're good to go, Right? And that's what they think the gospel is. That's not good news for anybody. Because as the word of God says, none of us can afford a ticket. In fact, the truth of the gospel is, the truth of the message of Christianity, the only message that counts is that if life is like a train trip bound for heaven, the only people who get on board are the people who come to the conductor with nothing in their pockets, nothing at all. Because anybody who comes up waving their own token of self-made righteousness and, Lord, look what I've done, they get to hear those words, get away from me, I never knew you. But the people who come to him and just say, I've got nothing, I'm appealing to your grace. If you're the God that the Bible says you are and you receive people just as they are, I'm coming to you as a sinner with nothing to offer except my belief that you love me. Those are the people who ride the train. Those are the people who become his children. It's hard. It's hard for us to accept that if we've been religious most of our lives. And yet, that's why Jesus told this story. So grace would transform us.
And then to the people who think that uh, they've given up on God, God, God says, I haven't given up on you. You may have given up on me, but I'll never give up on you. Francis, Francis Thompson, the, the English cleric and poet, he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven many, many years ago. And in that, he compares God to a bloodhound. He basically says God just is constantly on the move, constantly seeking his prey. And his prey is those of his children who haven't come home yet. And he chases them. He chases them tirelessly, relentlessly. If you've given up on God, please understand something. God is chasing you. And you may think that you can run away from him like Jonah, and he's always after you. And he won't drag you home unwillingly, but if for one moment you stop and say, okay, maybe God is real, maybe he loves me, maybe, maybe he can save me, he'll be there. And he'll chase you to the very gates of hell itself. And if you want to run in there, he'll let you. That's your choice. But it will not be because your father doesn't love you. And then third, to the group of people who say that they're afraid of God, he's the God who is prodigal. He is the prodigal God. Remember the first Sunday I asked you what that word means? You may not remember. It means a reckless spender. It means someone who's not wise with their money, someone who makes bad investments. And God, in terms of, of all human reckoning, makes the worst investments at all, of all. He, he spends his most precious possession, the life and the blood of his son, purchasing people, most of whom won't even follow him. And those who want to do so imperfectly at best. People who will break his heart, people who will always disappoint him. He pours out his riches on that. If you're afraid of God, please understand something. In all three of these stories Jesus tells, the father is depicted rejoicing. Does that sound like an angry, impassive, cruel, heartless, cold God? No, he's a God who celebrates. In fact, every time Jesus talks about heaven, you look it up in the Gospels, every time Jesus talks about what heaven is like, he talks about it in terms of rejoicing. Quick question, and you can be honest about this. Aren't you glad he doesn't say that heaven is gonna be like being in church? Hey, there's an honest person. I mean, I love coming to church, I really do, but an hour is enough. An hour a week is plenty. Jesus doesn't say you're going to sit and listen to sermons. Jesus doesn't say you're going to wear uh, uncomfortable clothes and worry what people think of you and have to be on time. No, no. He says it's going to be like a celebration. Imagine the best time you've ever had, the best day of your life. That pales in comparison to what life is like in his presence. And that ought to give us comfort about our loved ones who have gone on before us, our, our friends and our family members who knew Christ and are now gone to realize that they're in a place where there is constant rejoicing, where God is always saying, now there's another one that came home, let's celebrate. Where there's constant high fives and hugs and celebration and laughter and joy. And that's the God we serve and that's the Father whose house we will live in someday. So just imagine, imagine for a moment a, a mother who gets word of her son's death, that the, the firefighters have gone to his house, the house is burned to the ground, they couldn't get inside because the heat was too intense, and their son, they know he was home, his car is there, all his belongings are there, and so they, they're, they're sorry to announce that her son is gone. Imagine her sorrow, and then imagine a couple of hours later, the change in emotion when suddenly there's a knock on the door, and, and there's her son standing there, covered in soot, yes, but with that same crooked grin, this is definitely her boy, Imagine the joy she feels. Is she going to say, no, 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 wait a second. 
What have you been doing lately? No, all she's going to care about is he's alive, he's home. Any parent can relate to that, right? That is how God feels about you. He wants you home. Does he have expectations of you? Absolutely. Does he try to hold you to those expectations because they're for, their, for your good? He's a good father, absolutely. Does he love you even when you fail? You better believe he does. He would rather die for you than live without you. That's how much he loves you. So what about the rest of us? We've talked about three categories of people, and some of us would say, well, I don't really fit into any of those categories, honestly. The message for us is we play a part in this, that God cares about his lost children. What are we doing about that? The average church in America is either plateaued or declining, and I think the number is actually something like 85% aren't growing. Why? Because we don't love his lost children like he does. And we're not doing what we're called to do, which is be out there among them. Go back to the story of, of the boy and the fire. Imagine that, uh, you know, after she receives him back into her home and she cleans him up a little, a little, she says, well, how is it that you're still alive? And he says, well, before the firefighters even got there, my next door neighbor saw the fire and dragged me out. And I was unconscious from the smoke, so I just, just woke up, but, but I'm okay. And if that happened, how do you think that mom would feel about the next door neighbor who saved her boy? How do you think she would feel towards him or her? How do you think that mom would treat that neighbor from this point on? You see, if you're a Christian today, it's because Christ died for you. And if you know that, then you have this sense of, of gratitude in your heart and you want to say thank you to God. And if you really want to say thank you to God and you want to honor him in the best possible way, the best way you can do that is to love his lost children. And every time you drag one out of the fire, he rejoices. Every time you even make an attempt, every time you just say, okay, Lord, here's the list of people I know, my neighbors, my, my loved ones, my friends, my coworkers, who as far as I can tell don't know you, I'm gonna pray for them. Lord, open up a door for me to show them your unconditional love. Help me, Lord, to be a witness, an influence on them. Every time you have a conversation with them that you just try slowly to steer them toward God, God is so proud and it blesses his heart. When's the last time you did that? How often do you do that? 